Snatter, just talking to teachers. Teacher Development Trust Section, learning from the team at TDT on best practice CPD with research. This is Bethan Hindley from the Teacher Development Trust and I'm here with Andy Moore, the Director of the Ignite Teaching School Alliance. Um, We've just completed our third day working with colleagues around developing inquiry projects and we've had the delight of having Phil Naylor himself this morning talking to colleagues about how best to implement this in their schools. So I'm just going to ask Andy to tell us a bit about the project and what you're hoping to gain from working with us. Yeah, we've um, come into the project after running a number of projects over the last three years, really, collaboratively with through Ignite Teacher School Line. So we've worked with the Embedding Formative Assessments project with Dylan Williams, so that we worked with a cohort of 30 schools, looking at embedding that from across phases. And then more recently, we've worked with schools developing curriculum content around Chester Zoo, which has been awesome, and the, the power of coming together as a group of colleagues and, and working on something and, and sharing sharing the load, troubleshooting and creating something of value has been powerful. So we felt for this year in particular, we, we've done quite a bit on development of curriculum and, and pedagogy around dilemma bed learning with, with Deborah Kidd and Hal Roberts. We felt that it was now important for us to support colleagues in developing and exploring their own pedagogy really and really putting those research um, methods really and inquiry methods in a more robust way so mm. people can really unpick what works and what isn't working we've done a lot of talking around research bases and but we wanted to really empower the staff in our schools to to do that for themselves really and to reconsider the really powerful important parts of professional development yeah, and it's really great to see the conversations that are happening in the rooms today around talking about literacy or using manipulatives in maths mm-hmm. and sharing best practice across schools mm-hmm. and then developing focused questions to see how it's impacting individual pupils. Mm-hmm. So it's really exciting. Yeah. There's been a real buzz, hasn't there? There's been a real mm-hmm. buzz of, and I think um, the it's that, I suppose it's the empowerment of staff to do so. We, we've done a lot around how research can impact practice but actually I think the, the clarity and the resources and the work that you've done to help people focus mm. and give them methods to go into the classroom and explore and then unpick I think that's so important isn't it going mm. in and unpicking what's worked what hasn't worked and how we can then build on that practice to make it more effective the next time. Absolutely. And we're going to be bringing all the learning of the projects together to create a resource to be shared throughout the Teaching School Alliance. Yeah, and I'm really excited for that because, you know, we we do a lot of sharing of practice, but something like this will bring uh, a a formal formal layer to that, really. So we'll be creating a document and also we'll be having a teaching and learning showcase at the end of the year where we'll bring people together and and start to build across the teaching school and our our multi-academy trust as well. We've got all five schools, two secondaries and three primaries from Holy Family Catholic Multi-Academy Trust, part of it as well. So really excited to see how that's going to impact on layers of leadership and teaching there too. We're really pleased to be working with you. So thank you very much. We look forward to the outputs. Now back to you in the studio, Phil. Teacher Development Trust Section. Learning from the team at TDT on best practice CPD with research. Okay, so hello, Mary, and welcome to the podcast. Hello there, Phil, and I'm delighted to be talking to you this evening. Likewise, likewise, absolutely. So we've got lots and lots to get through, but the main focus is going to be talking about your book. So uh, before we get into that, can you just give us a little sort of potted history of your career to this point and what kind of things, as well as the book, that you're working on at the moment? So my career um, started in secondary religious education, um, but I've also taught a little bit of history, a little bit of uh, maths and PSHE and some uh, Latin at lunchtime. Um, and I've taught in London and Cambridge, but for the most part of my career, I was just outside Ipswich in Suffolk. 
And then I joined the local authority and um, I was doing general school improvement work there cross phase um, and also with responsibility for religious education, all the legal aspects of the agreed syllabus conference and that sort of thing and uh, supporting NQTs and RE conferences and things. And when I was um, in school, still I'd done a, um, a piece of work uh, which came out of Cambridge University, which uh, Professor Morris Goldson's work on uh, transfer and transition from key stage two to key stage three, but with particular emphasis on the curriculum. And I'd worked very closely with um, the, the primary schools with the children joined us in the secondary school. So I've had a long-standing interest in curriculum matters cross-phase. Um, but I was conscious of the fact that um, I, I was uh, going to be doing more cross-phase. So I've made it a point of my work always to be in as many primary schools as possible in general and early years in particular. Um, and I've also had um, long-standing interest in SEND alternative provision as well. Um, and since 2011, I've been working as an independent advisor, um, working in schools, talking to pupils, teachers and leaders, uh, about learning leadership and the curriculum. Um, and then in order to clarify my own thinking around what's happening and also trying to capture some of the great stuff that's going on in schools, um, I tend to write about it and that gets turned into blogs and then some of that into books. So um, that's what I've been doing up until now. But what um, has really lifted off, of course, has been the renewed focus on the curriculum. So the latest book um, has really triggered a lot of conversations and um, a lot of demand for um, work and support around the curriculum. So that's where I'm up to at the moment. And it absolutely has. And that, that leads into the next question. So I'm sure listeners are familiar with the book, but um, one word in the title um, captures people's attention. So could you just tell us what is uh, Gallimorphy and why did you choose this as part of the title for your book? Well, it, it's an interesting word, Gallimorphy, and I do like interesting words, but um, how it came about, so what it means is a sort of muddle or a melange or a mix-up of things. And I was talking to a very good um, friend and colleague of mine, Sharon Artley. Um, the book was written, it was at the printers, and I just hadn't finalized the title. I knew it was going to be called The Curriculum, but I needed a, I needed a subtitle as well. And I said to her, oh, Sharon, I just need another word opposite of coherence. I said, I don't want it to be incoherence to coherence. Said, That's just not strong enough. Anyway, she said, oh, my husband was doing a crossword puzzle yesterday. And she said, um, a word came up that was gallimorphy. I said, oh, Sharon, I think that's it. Let me just check what it means. I had to Google it myself. And so it really makes me laugh when people had to Google it. I say, yes, I did. And I wrote the blimmin' book. Um, but it really captures the idea that... Um, Lots of things had got conflated together and we needed some strands unpicking what was important and actually some of the stuff that was less helpful and, and so we could get shot off. So that was how Gallimaufry came in to be part of the title for the book. <laughs> and it's interesting because when you do get into the book and there's lots of distinguished people have written lots of wonderful comments in, in the introduction, you know, um, recommending the book but tom sherrington has written um an introduction and that's his opening part of the uh, of the introduction to say he also had to check what that word meant as well <laughs> i think i think everyone had to, well it might be one or two people it certainly wasn't me that did look it up so i find that quite amusing really so okay. it certainly got people talking and and, and thinking which, which is great Absolutely. And as has the book. So if we can just delve into section one. So in section one, you outline some curriculum fundamentals. So could you just take us through a brief history of the national curriculum and what you think is the purpose of a curriculum? Well, it's quite interesting, the history. And, and I really had to go back and do quite a lot of work uh, myself. I kind of knew the headlines of it, but I thought, well, how have we ended up with what we've got? And really up until 1988, um, there was no national curriculum. And up until then, it had been up to local authorities or schools to decide, you know, what was in the school curricula. Um, but the inspectorate found that while there were some high-quality work going on, um, but the inspectorate found that for many pupils it wasn't the case. And so that's why in 1988... Um, the National Curriculum set out the attainment targets and what those are, the knowledge, skills and understanding um, that children be expected to have by the end of the key stage um, and then the programmes of study to be taught at each stage and then 
you know, how they were going to be um, assessed. But although it arrived in 1988, actually it was first talked about by in, um, Sir Jim Callaghan um, in 1976. There was a, um, a great debate speech at uh, Ruskin College um, where he argued that there should be a national entitlement for all pupils. Um, in other words, a core curriculum of basic knowledge um, and what he was after was that education should equip children, I like this term, lively, constructive place in society and also to fit them to do a job of work. Um, but it, it took 12 years, basically, for it to actually be translated into legislation, which I find uh, quite interesting, things moving at a relatively slow pace. Um, and the purpose of the curriculum now, I think, is, is not far removed from what... Um, you know, Callaghan was arguing, you know, it should be lively, it should be interesting, it should contain lots of um, deep things that children wouldn't encounter in their, unless they were in school, uh, learning about this stuff. Um, and it should take them to a bigger space mentally, uh, psychologically, um, emotionally, and, and give them some decent... Um, stuff behind them, including plenty of skills, so that they can go out and, and have fulfilling lives. It, it's so interesting to go back and, and look at that because um, at the moment, uh, as part of the research school, we are working on a new course that's coming out around the curriculum. And you just think, I was looking at the dates and things there. I was thinking, <laughs> not not to date it for the for the audience now, but I started secondary school in 1988. So in terms of you know Baker and national oh. curriculum and all that sort of yeah. thing, I can't really remember a time before that. But I can also not no. remember having been teaching for 20 years a time when we had to think about what kind of things we will put onto a curriculum because quite a lot of that was already decided for us be that you know um, yeah. exam boards or key stage three schemes or national exactly. that, that sort of thing so it's really quite yeah. empowering for teachers to have a bit of an oversight on what kind of things they should be teaching or they can be teaching yes and i think it's useful to have to have that uh, just the headlines of the oversight of of you know the journey that the curriculum has been on um, and, and why it was changed in 2013 and the thinking behind that. So um, that's also very interesting, and the, the removal of levels, because they, got, they, they found that they were distorting uh, practice in some schools. Um, but, yes, and also a, a greater focus on uh, what children should know in the latest iteration of the national curriculum. Well, in some subjects, there's far more detail, for instance, in history than there is, say, in art. Um, so that sort of opens up some questions about who might have been um, uh, driving some of the content in some of the national curriculum areas. So it's, it's really interesting. It is, it is. So just moving on a little bit further into the book, uh, you talk about subject knowledge quite a lot, and we will touch on um, previous guest Michael Young's work in terms of powerful knowledge maybe later on, but what factors do you think have clouded the focus on developing teacher subject knowledge? And, you know, as Hirsch said, does, does knowledge beget knowledge? So, yeah, I mean, there's two two parts to that question. So I think that teacher subject knowledge has taken um has been sidelined up until recently um because there's been a tendency to over focus on um generic pedagogical developments some of which are really useful you know it's it, it's really important to focus on um assessment for learning high quality questioning uh, responsive teaching that sort of thing but underpinning that um we do need to be secure in our subject knowledge so that we can then impart that to children. So the consequence of that has meant that a lot of training, both in schools and on courses, has has focused on how rather than the what. So it's not to say that the how is not important, but there's been far less focus on actually what is worthwhile knowledge and how we're going to unpack it for our pupils students um, and I think it's also worth saying that you know this is obviously a, a different picture in primary than it is in secondary because most primary colleagues most of them are generalists with a focus on English and math and they're quite often having to lead on subjects that they might not have studied themselves since they were 14 or 15 so you've got a 
gap there which now needs to be addressed. It's not a blame game. It's about saying this is a professional need and we've got to be quite hard-nosed about how we create the time to fill that subject knowledge. But, I mean, even in secondary, you know, you, you don't arrive from your university course and your PGCE course and then you can just teach based on that. There's quite a lot of subject knowledge that needs to be worked up in order to be able to, you know, deliver programs of study. So, um, I, I, I just think that the, the, the beauty and the, 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 you know, the treasures of individual subjects have, are now waiting to be unearthed. And they, they have been in some schools always. But I think across the sector, we've just assumed that's there. And now we know that there's more, there's more work to be done. But it's good work and it's enjoyable work. Um, and then your second um, part of the question about whether knowledge begets knowledge as Michael Young says, we, we do know that the more you know, the easier it is to learn new stuff. And I think this particularly relates to concepts. So it's not just random facts um, or a Grad Grindian view of, of education. This is about um, children having the chance to encounter and engage with and do important things with big ideas and so to me it's not just lots of bits of knowledge it's organized knowledge under the big ideas or the concepts and and for me that starts getting really exciting absolutely i mean the focus as well um recently in that you said since 2013 around subject knowledge but also around you know not to separation of pedagogy and subject knowledge but pedagogical content knowledge and the way that you teach a particular subject has been a, a sort of a welcome focus as well oh yes absolutely and and what, what um can't be assumed there is that that pedagogical subject knowledge is just there that comes from experience it comes from working with other colleagues um, the lot of the pedagogical subject knowledge is knowing where the pitfalls might be, what common misconceptions might be, the best routes in to teaching some complex ideas and concepts. And so that needs deep, thoughtful work, I think. Absolutely. And and some CPD to underpin that. And, you know, I've seen in the role that I've got in terms of teacher development trust working across schools with this, the, the, the change in focus away from generic whole staff CPD to more focus, whether it's phase specific, whether it's, you know, um, a department specific CPD, but focused on improving not just the subject knowledge, but how to teach that particular subject. Yes. And, and there are great examples of schools doing tremendous work on this. So another you know, research school, um, uh, the Darrington Research School and, and um, Sean Allison and his team, you know, they're very clear about how their meetings are used, um, staff me- um, subject-specific meetings, actually unpacking what is going to be taught next uh, and someone leading on that and, and everyone's knowledge um, and expertise growing as a result of those very precise conversations. Um, and so it's about... Um, schools and, and school leaders um, being clear about the purpose of those meetings, um, that they've got to be focused on stuff that's going to make a difference to learning and anything that is admin, you know, really covered through emails and stuff. So it, it's having an impact in terms of how we, how we deploy our time when we're not in classrooms. No, definitely, definitely. Okay, so just back to the book um, for a second. Another hot topic as well as curriculum is cognitive science. So what can cognitive science contribute to our thinking about the curriculum? Well, um, for one thing, I don't think it has all the answers and I don't think it claims to, but I think some of the work emerging from the field of cognitive science has got some useful insights that I think it's wise to draw on. So... Um, just to take, for instance, Dan Willingham's work on why don't students like school, um, that, you know, after 15 years or so of, of looking at the field of cognitive science, saying it looks as though human beings are curious, but thinking is hard work. Well, that's quite useful in terms of curricular thinking. Assume that children um, like doing things that are difficult. A lot of my work is around high challenge, as long as it's accompanied by low stretch. But that natural curiosity, I think we need to tap into. But not just Dan's work, but plenty of others say that learning is not likely to be secure unless some effort has gone in. 
And so that's a helpful um, insight to have when we're thinking about, well, what do I want my children to learn and what are some things that need to happen in order for that to be secure? So another thread from cognitive science is that um, uh, regular low-stakes testing, which a lot of schools are doing um, tremendous work on now, that supports things shifting from the working memory into the long-term memory. Um, And, you know, it looks as though from a number of sources that when pupils and students are given a small number of items that they're tested on, that they mark for themselves, and the results are private to them, that the learning is likely to be deeper. So these are all helpful things, I think, to um, add to our repertoire of of um, things that we use in order to make sure that really learning sticks. Um, and for me, one of the most... So con- the, the, the development of concepts is, is a really important insight um, that's come out of... Uh, cognitive science so when if we teach concepts explicitly um and children understand the concept it means new knowledge relating to that concept is much stickier so that's a really helpful insight in terms of curricular planning um and then the 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 fun there i'm really um i'm really excited about in terms of what's emerged from the cognitive science and a lot of this really is kind of common sense we know it intuitively it's just useful to have some wider research that that supports that is the power of is the power of reading um so as as dan willingham says you know that stories conflicts and dilemmas if 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 we can build those into our curricular planning it means learning is likely to be deeper um and the reason for that is that we have an emotional connection to stories and we have an intellectual connection to stories so wonderful phrase in the jargon, our brains privilege story. And so lots of schools have taken this insight on board and saying, well, how are we building not just fiction, it's, it's also it can be non-fiction, but how are we building texts into children's wider reading, either extracts for homework or, um, you know, making sure there's something read in every lesson. Um, so, so, so for me, the insights from cognitive science really strengthen the case for building um, a, a really terrific, rich curriculum. Absolutely. And it's worth also thinking about some misconceptions around, you know, cognitive science and applying to the curriculum. So we look at things like interleaving and spacing that, that, you know, those techniques, well, especially interleaving is probably better suited to, you know, students planning their own revision rather than, you know, spacing different concepts through a curriculum at different times. Um, So it's it's one of these things where it's quite useful to have a deeper understanding of cognitive science rather than just a surface understanding of maybe what you read on Twitter. Um, yes, I do think it's worth doing um, a bit of extra reading around it. I mean, interleaving done well can be um, can really strengthen memory. But I think Mark Enser's very good on this. You know, you can get in a real muddle if the interleaving is misunderstood. It's not about jumping around all the, all, all the time. It's about threading through important ideas and concepts that we need to revisit. Um, so, for instance, if we're teaching a unit, say, on history... Um, say the Magna Carta um, and we might have identified democracy as a a concept that really needs to be developed and and understood by John. We've earlier, say in another unit, um, say on ancient Greece, um, if that's been taught, we might have also identified democracy as um, an underlying theme there. So it would make sense to have um, some reference back, some discussion about how is the understanding of democracy different or similar in these two periods of history. So it needs to be done thoughtfully rather than just jumping around all over the place. Um, but the, I think the big thing behind the interleaving is that it's getting away from this idea. I've taught this unit, I've assessed it, my children have got it. It's much more, uh, it, the key things do need to be revisited at some point. And there was a really interesting, um, there was a really interesting trial um, that Dan Willingham um, tweeted about earlier on in the summer, a, a randomised control trial for maths um, at, at year seven um, grades, what would be our year seven students, where um, um, there were about fifty over fifty classes, and for four months, half of them had blocked 
blocked practice in the mass. So they've just got one unit, then the next unit, then the next unit. But then the, um, the, the trial group had the same material, but it was interleaved. So they were expected to go back and revisit. The teacher led them on this. And when they were, when they were tested a day later, um, the results were um, significantly different. So what they found was that um, the students who'd had the blocked practice, um, they, um, a day later, they got 64% of the test right compared with the students who'd had the, eight, who'd had the interleaving, they got 80%, correct? And a month later, on an unannounced test on the same material, it had dropped to 42% for the students who had the blocked as opposed to the interleaved. They got 74%. So although this is maths, I think there's some interesting things that we can take from that in other subjects as well. Um, and what I'm particularly encouraged um, by that research because um, Roa and co who, who did that research, they said it wasn't more work for teachers. I'm very relieved to hear that. I don't know anyone in the sector who's looking to do more work. I think we all work too hard. It's just about how we divvy up what we're teaching our pupils and students. And this kind of work doesn't happen overnight. It's about thinking through and adjusting, um, you know, because we don't get it all right, you know, right from the word go. So it's quite a long-winded way of talking about the interleaving. I think it's got enormous power, but I don't think it can be rushed. No, definitely, definitely. Well, it just moves me on to a question that I was going to ask around this. And um, if we are going to do justice to the curriculum, we need to take the right amount of time. So um, how misunderstood is, is pace in the curriculum? And I, I go back to a podcast I did with Mark McCourt, who talked about a conveyor belt curriculum and, and something that, mm. you know, when I started teaching maybe about 20 years ago now, it was lesson plan. You must stick to what's on the lesson plan, get through that information, get it done, move on. And, you know, it's a little bit different in terms of what you've talked about in this chapter. Um, yes, it's what I call the curse of content coverage. <clears throat> and, you know, just because I've taught it, it doesn't mean to say that my pupils and students have got it. Just because it's on a plan, the plan is never more important than the pupils in front of me. I should not be moving on until I know that all my pupils are secure and the main ideas and I do think Mark McCourt is brilliant on this that you know that he says every child can can be taught just some are going to take longer than others so it's up to me to work out you know um how I'm going to make sure that all my pupils or students have got the main ideas and how I'm going to offer some who might have grasped it things of greater depth and complexity but the the the, the point you were asking about pace is that um, pace needs to be appropriate to the learning and I do think that you know Ofsted have fed into this in the past this idea that um, probably about 10, 10 or so years ago that quite a few reports coming out saying that the pace was sluggish and it was slow and that then got translated to everything's got to be pacey snap 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 now there's a place for fast things but not all learning is fast and so there are times when I've just got to pause and say, look, you, some of us are just not getting it. We're just going to unpack it a bit further. Um, and I'm not going to move on if my children are not secure, because otherwise we end up just with a load of tick boxes, but masses of gaps in children's, in children's real deep learning and understanding. So I, I do really worry about pace it's just something we've got to pay more attention to what is appropriate in the lesson right now and i should not be moving on just because i've got to get through the content because if my children are not getting the content then it was a waste of time anyway it's a bit like the chap who goes into the pub uh, with his dog and he goes up to the bar and his mate's standing at the bar and um, he says to his mate oh i taught my dog to speak french today so his mate says oh marvelous let's Let's hear him speak some French then. And the chap turns around and I said, I, I, said I taught him. I didn't say he'd learnt it. <laughs> and so it's this checking for learning. Have my children learnt it? Not whether they've done something. What have they learnt? <laughs> and who's not learnt it? And what are we going to do about it? Because it's okay not to have learnt. Because at least we know and we can do something about it. So, um, yeah, I'm really strongly about pace. And it really needs to big discussions about it in, the, in schools. 
Mm. And he said something before in terms of, you know, um, you know, it, things. These things are common sense, but actually, you know, both me and Simon Cox, as I said to you before we came on air, we're, we're looking through this book and we've read this book in the research school office, and it's really, really digestible. And the chapters are, you, know, you can't wait to get to the ne- to the next one to read the next nugget of wisdom from it. But it almost comes under that category oh, of uncommon common sense because you think, well, obviously that makes sense that I wouldn't want to just teach a lesson for the sake of teaching a lesson to move on to the next thing obviously i'd revisit but you think how many lessons and how many years did i do that for before i realized that actually perhaps it might be worth standing back slowing it down unpacking it a little bit before you start moving on and to the same token you know sometimes you can get through things pretty quickly because pupils do understand them and they're building on previous knowledge exactly and we can't predetermine that too much in advance which is why you know it's healthier to have medium-term plans which are then adjusted as we go through rather than lesson by lesson plans because otherwise we we we, we start beating ourselves up but we haven't finished what was in that plan well the reason we didn't finish is because the kids needed something slightly different or we moved on too quickly we didn't move on too quickly we'd established that they had they were secure so the irony of the of the lesson plan which i think has got a lot to answer for Mm. But there we are. We're, we're opening up these conversations now, which is healthy. Yeah, well, absolutely. The whole sector is, which is great. <laughs> and I think these conversations mm. are being opened with the whole sector. And something that you know is quite often quoted, and Twitter is not the greatest uh, barometer of of measuring what all teachers think, as they often say on the podcast. But um, you know, initial teacher training, there does seem to be much more of a focus, whether it's through universities or whether it's through skits or whether it's through you know in school um, experience, mm. on talking about the curriculum and some of these you know, myths and some of these things that have gone on previously seem to be moving and I'm seeing less and less around what's on your lesson plan and more what's on your medium term plan, what kind of how how are you planning for the learning instead of planning just for the lesson. Yeah, great. Yes, yes, so that's good. Okay, so uh, moving on to differentiation. So you talk about filling the gaps in the book um, and you pick up some points from from David Dido and I'm a big fan of, of David's work and I've listened to his podcast with Craig Barton quite a number of times. So how can you plan curriculum to, to fill gaps? Well, um, I think the most straightforward is to... I mean, there's a number of gaps. One is the knowledge to make sure we've identified the key concepts and that we are teaching those explicitly. But then there's also the gaps in literacy, for instance, or the nuts and bolts of fluency um, in math. So it's about um, knowing what what those gaps are and uh, making sure that those are taught explicitly, even if it feels a bit messy because children can't move on without them. Um, But... What I don't think we need to do is produce lots of differentiated stuff for different for what we think children are capable of. In fact, I think we, I think we ought to lose the term differentiation in the sector because it it results in teachers, in my in my view, wasting time producing differentiated resources on the mistaken assumption that they're going to know what children are capable of, um, and quite often the ones for the children who are struggling do not help them move up to, um, you know, to, to be able to do more. They put limits on their learning. Um, I think we've also got some problems with all, most, and some being able to do, you know, lesson objectives. All of them, everyone's going to do this, some of you are going to do this, and most of you and some of you do this. Um, again, loads of children can fall through the gaps, even children who could do the difficult stuff. They don't need to because they've done what everyone has done. So I think there's masses of problems, both in terms of workload, which is the secondary issue, but the main issue is that differentiation um, in terms of trying to fill gaps, I, I believe, widens those gaps. And instead of differentiation, I think we need to be talking about <clears throat> scaffolding and support as we pitch to the top. So I need to be keeping my class together for as much as possible. We're going to be pitching it high, talking about big ideas, using demanding text, and we're going to support everyone to get there primarily through talk um, so that everyone, everyone's got a chance to hear and to engage. Um, and what we know from emerging research around that, that, that um, that's more likely to close those gaps than uh, trying to give 
Mickey Mouse things for children if we think they can't cope. Mm-hmm. I'm just, I mean, it's not often I try to quote The Simpsons, and I'll probably quote this out of context, but I'm often minded with thinking about the differentiation quote, the, the, the part Simpson idea that, yeah. you know, I, I, you put me in a class where you think that, um, as he would say, you know, I'm not smart, you put me in a class and slow down what I do, and then at the same time, the rest yeah. of the class, I keep moving ahead, and then someday I'll catch up. I mean, it's just, uh, you know, yeah. <laughs> you think the Simpsons are it's quite often great, on the money. It's a great clip that, yeah, yeah you're expecting me to catch up by doing things, uh, yeah, the, uh, the behind everyone else. It's exactly that. Um, and, you know, a, a really interesting piece of work that came out of Sussex University um, on in the summer, um, which had a lot of um, pu- uh, publicity, but, you know... It, what they found was was that um, re- reading aloud for year eight over a twelve week period, um, a couple of novels above their pay grade, so at least a year above what they'd normally be studying. What they found was in that time, all the students made about eight and a half months progress in their reading ages, but for the weaker students, they made sixteen months. Why? Because it was pitched above, everyone was kept together, they didn't need to parse every word or understand every bit of it right there and then, they could go back and do it, but in but it, 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 it's this notion of story again, that actually once I get into the, the thread of a story, I'm carried along by it and I'm accessing the big ideas, whereas too often those children are just end up, you know, doing spaggy type stuff and phonics, both of which are important, obviously, but if they never get access to the bigger stuff, they're never, they're never going to catch up. So, um, by and large, it's uh, pitching things high and supporting children to get there and fulfilling some of those gaps, maybe identifying some of the key vocabulary and what I've, I'm, I'm going to be teaching them, either from a text or that we're going to be learning about, and maybe some of those children having a chance to do some a bit of pre-teaching, if necessary, or we, we, we focus on some of that later. Um, but this notion of entitlement, I think every child is entitled to have access to the big ideas. It's my job to support them to get there. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. Okay, so moving to section four, um, you talk about curriculum instruments, and I love this phrase. So, should teachers become question kleptomaniacs? <laughs> well, I nicked that. I hope it was clear in the, in the text. I nicked that from Tim Oates. Um, and, and, and he said, really... You know, one of the most important ways of, you know, uncovering children's learning is to ask them great questions and also give them questions above, again, above their pay grade. And so he makes the case that, um, you know, we all ought to be better at nicking and developing great questions. You know, it's really the powerhouse of learning. Um, and, um, you know, I, I, I think subject knowledge based questions are really really powerful and they don't just they don't just land in our laps we have to think those we have to some of those through and plan for some of those i think um because um it's the opening up of the questioning that both deepens children's knowledge um but also exposes misconceptions so that's why they're so powerful and so it, it's much more than has everyone got it or have we finished, you know, dump those sorts of questions. Well, park them to one side. You know, what do we really mean by incarnation or democracy, you know, and, and who's agreeing with this and who's disagreeing with it? It's, it's those sorts of deep, deep subject specific questions that I think are really important. Mm. No, definitely, and, and in this this is why I said to you before this doing this podcast has been the best CPD for me personally because those are the kind of questions that I regularly asked, and I mean my year nine now must absolutely cringe and think, oh no, he's been on the podcast again because I'm starting <laughs> to ask those kind of questions rather than are we all okay? Yeah, everybody's fine, and move on. And you know I'm cold calling with really detailed check for understanding questions. It's yeah, it's, it's probably the worst thing I've done in terms of their perception, but. They seem to be doing better, so that's good. Right, moving on quickly. Yeah, and actually, they might grizzle. I tell you, they might grizzle. They love it, really, because you're paying them a compliment when you ask them these questions. Yeah. You really are. Yeah, and definitely. So you're, 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 yeah, so I don't think we should ever shy away from them. Because it doesn't matter if we don't know, because we come back to them. So, yeah. No, absolutely. Okay. And uh, yes, I think they think they're under the category of they'll thank me for this one day. I mean, year 11 are probably a bit further along. <laughs> they understand that. But year nine on a Tuesday afternoon being asked really complex, deep mm. questions about ionic bonding. Don't thank me for it at the time. Trust me. <laughs> 
Anyway, they are nine something. Well, exactly, exactly. So, moving on to a topic that we've been through quite a few times on the podcast with various guests, including Doug Lamarv and people like that. So, deliberately building vocabulary is one of the most important things we can do as teachers. So, why is that so important? Well, it's it's the key to everything, really. Um, vocabulary is is sort of like the the breath of life for the curriculum. It's how we make meaning. It's how we understand one another. And it's, um, I think it's probably one of the most important things we do. Um, and I think that uh, up until now, it's been pretty casual um, across the sector. I'm not talking about individual schools, but it's like, you know, if, if they come across vocabulary, then they'll pick it up. And now you've got people being far more intentional about the teaching of vocabulary, particularly subject-specific vocabulary. words to life um and so i think there's some massively helpful work being written and blogged around around vocabulary development i think at quickly's book closing the vocabulary gap is phenomenal i think isabel beck's bringing words to life i think some of the work that david didow has done i think andy sarvey's work chris curtis uh jennifer webb there's masses and masses of people doing really thoughtful stuff some many of them are english experts but actually their work the principles, you know, applied across to other disciplines as well, because it, it's one of the things I think people are waking up to, the difference between novice and expert. So if I'm an ex- expert in inverted commas, I'm casually using tier two and tier three vocabulary. Why? Because that's my stock in trade. I'm working with people, youngsters, who've not come across that before. So it's my job to remember that and to unpack it for them, not in a way that's patronizing, but in a way that is really deep and meaningful and investigative. And I'm seeing some terrific work um, coming out of vocabulary development, particularly around um, going into the etymology. Um, what they're finding is the, the schools that are going into the roots of the words, they're finding that the children with the greatest language deficit are um, making the greatest gains. Um, coming back, I found out this, I found out that. They just really enjoy being clever, you know, and playing around with big words. And sometimes people say, oh, this is a bit hard. And I say, yeah, but learning is meant to be effortful. Otherwise, it's not deep. But also, we've got children in the sector who, um, at the age of four, they're fluent in dinosaurs. And a lot of those children also know that the word dinosaur comes from two Greek words, dinos is scary, saurus is lizard. If they can do it at four, they can do it all the way through. And it starts unpacking a lot of that um, tier two, tier three vocabulary. And that's where knowledge organizers can play a part. Or we've got some of this specific vocabulary and we play around, not in a mucking about way, but in an intentional way with the real deep meanings of, of these words. So there's a lovely one, for instance, on um, uh, sabotage, uh, which is on a knowledge organizer for a unit on apartheid, um, which I think was originally from the Michaela Scott, Joe Kirby's work. And, you know, it, it's really helpful for children to know that, or to find out, it comes from the French word sabot, which means a clog. And that was, they were used in the, industri- in the French Revolution to, uh, as weapons. And so you've got, another, you've got another layer of story when you start a meaning when you start going into the etymology of some of these some of these words and so I'm, I'm really I'm really um, excited about some of the work that's going on in the field I think it's I think it's just beautiful no I'd absolutely agree with that and in terms of working with new members of staff as well I find that you know, we, we've done a big focus, as, as you may know, in, in Blackpool on vocabulary work, and we've been lucky enough to have Alex Quigley up uh, working with us on that project. But actually, the sort of professionalisation, I mean, so obviously we've always been professional, but the re-professionalising of teachers to be able to become, mm. you know, existing within a knowledge-rich curriculum, I'm finding teachers going back to me and saying that they're finding out things about the etymology of words. They're extending their range yeah. of Tier 3 vocabulary because, yeah. you know, new, younger teachers may have been through, you know, a, a national curriculum, yeah. and they might have been through, uh, which was more, as you, as you outlined at the beginning, but actually they're becoming enthused and engaged and excited by, you know, this focus on knowledge, and they're thinking they've never taught, well, obviously they're only new teachers, but some of the early career teachers never taught better because they are learning at the same time. 
I absolutely agree. I think what's emerging from this work, particularly when people are open-minded about it, they're, they're falling back in love with their subjects again, and they're finding out new things in a, in a sense of adventure, not, not beating themselves like, oh, I didn't know that, I should have done it. It's like, oh my goodness, this is so interesting. And that's what we want, because um, this kind of intellectual curiosity breeds more energy, and so, um, and that's what we want for the profession, you know, to get excited again about the stuff teaching children, finding out, finding out more, which is lovely. No, it is. It is. Right. Changing tax slightly and looking at uh, the purpose of visits. So, um, you know, you think about areas where pupils are, you know, you've got a high percentage pupil premium. Not that that's a homogenous group that you should use as a label for anybody. But, you know, these may have been the schools that enjoyed visits out or visitors coming in. So you did a really interesting section around the purpose of visits and visitors and how that goes about cementing the curriculum. So just tell us a little bit more about Mm. that. Well, one of my concerns about visits and visitors is they can just be a nice thing. And when you talk to children afterwards about what they learn, they tell you all sorts of irrelevant things. Well, irrelevant to the learning. They're obviously important, you know, about, you know, what color the, 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 the vicar's boots were or something like that. Or, you know, someone's sick on the way to the museum. I, I, you know, that's, that's fine. But if they don't remember anything else, this is a problem. And I have worried in the past about the amount of time that's invested in that, in the, in the trips, bringing sisters in and in, in wow days. Uh, you know, in primary, um, because we've got to think about the legacy learning. And so I, I believe they're absolutely essential. Experiencing something firsthand is fantastic. But um, there does need to be some pre-teaching beforehand um, of, of some of the things that children are likely to encounter that will just pass them by if they don't, if they don't know uh, the significance of what they're about to see and so or, or the person coming in so we've just got to be thinking about what's the learning we want to come out of this what are children going to remember um but i think there's some quite light touch ways of doing this as well um i mean i'm arguing that you know this matters within walking distance of a school that we could build into the curriculum whether it's primary or secondary so there, there's normally an historical place of interest. There's places of worship. Um, they're usually local universities or higher places of higher education. So it's about how we're incorporating what's available learned locally into the learning. Um, and where they're not available locally, like, you know, a university, for instance, you know, Skype calls or things like that, so that you're making experiences where reasonable you're putting those into the curriculum um but they've got to deepen learning it just can't be something that's enjoyed for its own sake if that makes sense just because it's a jolly (laughs) (laughs) no absolutely absolutely does yeah definitely definitely i'm just conscious of time mary so i'm just going to move on a little bit if that's okay to the last couple of questions um Mm. and we're going to talk about leadership so so obviously leadership is something that you're um you know your expertise you share across the country talking at conferences around leadership so what should leaders take into account when thinking about the curriculum um well there are several strands to this first they do need to know the rationale for why there's this curriculum in this school so it's about thinking about well what are our school aims and does the curriculum we've got an offer here match that broadly it hasn't got to reflect the exact words um but then thinking about well what might some of our pupils be missing that we could put into the curriculum can't do everything but if we've identified that quite a few of our pupils um, come in with low levels of literacy, how are we going to make sure that our curriculum is really rich in language and high-quality talk in the development of sophisticated vocabulary, really thoughtful reading um, embedded across school? So it's about thinking um, about what, what children in this context need. That, that's one level. The second level is how am I going to make the space and the time for my colleagues to develop their subject knowledge because for my money, one of the biggest professional development needs at the moment is subject-specific knowledge development. So it's about how we use meetings. It's about, and there are some schools that are doing this really well, that all meetings are related to the stuff that needs to be taught. So subject development, anything else is done in an email. This is primary and secondary schools really taking a hard-nosed view on this. Um, and how am I going to um, um, 
make sure that the subject development, subject knowledge development, is at the core of professional development. So, um, and this is in the inspection framework in terms of implementation. It says the expectation is teachers should have good subject knowledge. Where they're working out of their subject specialism, which is basically everybody in primary, but also happens in secondary, leaders have put in place support. So that's something that I think leaders have got to be very mindful of. It's not a blame game. It's just we are where we are. And I think one of the consequences for this is I think it needs to go into performance management. I'm going to develop my subject knowledge, say if I've never taught Buddhism, which I haven't taught Buddhism. I'm going to read half a dozen books, hopefully paid for by the school as part of my performance develop, uh, part of my professional development. I'm going to write up a summary to share with colleagues and start doing some planning. I would expect that to go into my performance management. As long as, as, long as we've taken out target grades, numerical target grades, which do absolutely nothing to raise standards. Those have got to go. What do we want to do? We want to raise standards, dump the things that don't make any difference. Target grades don't um, completely distort practice, very unfair. Most of that is out of the anyway. But what I do, well, so push those out of the way and I'm focusing on subject development. And then any processes in schools where leaders have got control over this, we make sure that we've got sensible feedback policies and whole class feedback we do not do redundant marking because we know that most marking makes absolutely no difference to kids learning so there's that and so we then focus on the stuff that really matters i'm not saying we never mark i'm saying most of the marking that goes on in books is a complete utter waste of time so when we strip back all that kind of stuff which i think leaders have got some hard thinking to do then we're going to have the space to really develop the curriculum we can't keep doing stuff the system is going to collapse if we keep giving teachers more to do unless we take stuff out. So there's some hard-nosed messages there, I think, for leaders. <laughs> no, and I couldn't agree more with the with the um, performance management and the appraisal system. And something that we've had quite a lot of involvement with in terms of teacher development trust work has been around change of professional development uh, and appraisal and taking data targets out because of well numerous reasons that have been well documented around you know teachers' impact on you know pupils' grades, which you'd like to think does have an influence, but it's not the only thing, etc. And and pupils and teachers not being able to meet targets. So we did a lot around disciplined inquiry, but actually it's perfectly legitimate to say that your target for your disciplined inquiry is increasing your subject knowledge whether that's through your own independent reading or you know uh, working with another school or working with another colleague on developing that and then seeing what kind of impact that has in terms of you know the the, the outcomes whether it's assessments for your pupils or you know some assessment whatever it might be but actually it's enhancing yeah. subject knowledge is, is definitely a valuable use of time and and i think most teachers would welcome it being attached to professional development and appraisal because these are targets that you can meet these are not targets that you know are not in your control no. you can do something about this that's right and 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 um plenty of people are, are doing sensible work in this john thompson's been brilliant on this for years but i can tell you when i talk about that at large conferences is generally a sharp intake of breath. The sector is not there yet. We're still wedded to dodgy data, I'm afraid. Right, right. Well, you see, this is not the podcast. No, it, no, it, it, it absolutely is, and that's another example of because I mean, you know, I've seen John speak quite a few times, and I've been to quite a lot of his stuff, and, and we've, and he knows this anyway, but we've adopted that policy in terms of his discipline inquiry, and I go out talking at various different schools about that. But it has been a little bit of a subtle shift, particularly with primary colleagues, around rather than doing a disciplined inquiry into a particular evidence-based strategy, they're now looking at, right, I want to develop my subject knowledge of history, of geography, of art, of all of these things that you know primary teachers have always done but maybe haven't had as much of a focus on. So are now actually using mm. that as their own you know, performance management target and actually they're yeah. actually enjoying the process again. Yes, yes. Yeah, which is a great byproduct. Yeah, sure. Great. Okay. So um, in terms of, you talked a little bit there about the accountability. So I'll just finish off with um, the subject commentaries. Now, I really enjoyed reading all of those because, I mean, your, your insight across all of those was fantastic in terms of, and it shows how much experience you've got across different subjects and different phases. So what extra expertise did you draw on in writing those sections and, and how important do you think external expertise is? Well, that's really nice feedback, Phil. I tell you why, because I nearly didn't do them, and because uh, I, you know, I know quite a lot about some subjects, but I don't know much about that design technology. 
or music. So I had to do a lot of reading, a lot of research, and there is some great stuff out there. Um, but I have had a lot of feedback that people do find those incredibly helpful. So I'm glad I tied my leg to a chair, as Sue Cowley says, and you've got to do stuff you don't want to do. And I just cracked on with them. Um, but... Um, no, it was just research, really, uh, reading and research, just trying to distill, you know, the, not the essence of that. So what, what were the main things about it? And then what I did was I pulled together about half a dozen good websites for people to go further, because one of the missing links is actually high-quality websites that are producing good quality resources for schools, things like um, the, the British Museum um, teaching history through 100 objects. Fantastic resource. Um, but teachers have got to know it's there. Otherwise, we end up downloading stuff that is not of high quality from the internet and schools actually paying for some of this, which makes uh, just a mockery of a high-quality, ambitious curriculum for our children. So um, that's what I did. I just sort of pulled together stuff that I knew was um, sensible, based in research, high quality visually, um, and, and would support teachers in this. So, yeah, it was just, it was just uh, I, I loved doing the research for it. Writing it up was a bit tougher, um, but I'm glad I did because people have found it helpful. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in terms of, I mean, I, I could sympathise entirely with you in terms of when I lead CPD at primary schools and I'm a secondary specialist, I'm not a primary specialist, but even when I'm trying to make sure that I understand the difference between key stage one and key stage two, I always make sure that I pay reference to whatever particular topic I'm talking about and how that is in EYFS. Because I think that spending the time to look within, you know, teachers' individual areas, you know, is, is really appreciated. And I think that the detail that you've gone into in all those different areas will will help specialists, but it will also help people who aren't experts in that. And and I thought about it, Mary, in terms of a leadership role, you know, at the level of having yeah. an understanding of subjects across the board will help you in your sort of you know, your collective curriculum plan. Um, oh, that's interesting. Yes, I hadn't thought about it like my audience were was was actually primary colleagues actually having to pick up a subject at short notice and just needed a quick summary but i hadn't thought of it from a leadership point of view that that's a good point yes mm. thank you nice feedback <laughs> yeah well this is speaking to deputy heads in primary school who said that you know or, or that they've been out of the classroom for you know a reasonable amount of time obviously they're in the classroom as well but in terms of actively teaching so it was nice to have a an insight mm. into different subjects for, for them again mm. good that's good <laughs> Okay, right. So just a last question to wrap it up and just to say thank you so much for your time tonight. Really, really appreciate it. And, and the book is superb. I'll be passing that book forward. Um, I think it was Jill Berry that, that said this to me on the one of the podcasts that, you know, it's really valuable to share a book. So what I've been doing with people's books is I've been passing those on to listeners who, you know, comment on the podcast or, or tweet about it. So hopefully with your permission, that's okay if I were going to share the book and, and give that away. Of course, of course it is. I need to put another one in the post to you so you've got a, a pristine copy if you're giving one away. Okay. Oh, fantastic, fantastic. <laughs> we can do that afterwards. <laughs> okay. So in terms of um, last things, so I know that you're doing quite a lot of um, speaking engagements. You've been at research head conferences, for example. So where can listeners see you next? And could you signpost listeners to your blogs, your Twitter uh, and maybe websites as well? Uh, yes, so my Twitter handle's at Mary Myers, and um, basically I, I use Twitter to repost interesting stuff and anything I come across. Um, and uh, if I've written anything recently, I put it I put it in there as well. Um, I, I, I do update the website with um, with with materials as well and blogs. And um, so I'm, I've got some interesting ones coming up. Uh, some more research in Birmingham uh, sometime in March. Um, and then I'm doing, because because there's so much demand on the curriculum, um, I've actually put in place 10 or 12, 10, I think, different venues around the country on a day on the curriculum because I'm, I'm finding there are more schools and organizations that want me to talk about the curriculum than I've got time for. So one of the ways to meet the demand is actually to do a bit of a roadshow around the country. And so um, it's starting in January in Ipswich um, and then North South, um, and all around the country, which I'm really looking forward to because it gives a whole day then to look at uh, in detail at some of the ways we go into the planning. We've got the principles in place, but actually, what does this then look like? How does it translate into plans? So I'm much looking forward to that. And that's details on that are on my website, marymyatt.com. 
Fantastic. Well, we'll put links to that on the uh, show notes at the beginning of the podcast. So just to say thank you again, Mary, for your time. Really, really appreciate it. And uh, I think I look forward to seeing you at Research Ed Birmingham. So I'll, I'll be speaking in a cupboard somewhere, uh, probably. But it's one of the beauties of doing a podcast, Mary, that, that nobody knows who you are. So it's great. So you can just kind of blend in. When do, when do you talk? They go, oh, yes, okay, I may have heard. But, yeah, it just blend into the background. So hopefully I'll emerge from the background and see you at some point in, uh, in Birmingham. Well, that'd be, that would be really great. <laughs> okay. Right, thanks again. It's thanks for your time. to talk to you. Thanks very much. I've really enjoyed it. My favourite subject, the curriculum. Miller's Netter, just talking to teachers. Podcast pedagogy. What is Phil reading this week? Podcast pedagogy, listening to teachers. Nailers Netter, just talking to teachers. Hello, my name's Matthew Evans, and Phil has asked me to come on to his podcast and say a few words about my new book, which came out um, about two months ago. And it's called Leaders with Substance, an antidote to leadership genericism in schools. Uh, A long title, um, but I'm coming on to tell you a bit about what's in the book and why you might want to give it a read. So my reasons for writing, I've been a senior leader in schools for about 15 years. Uh, I'm in the secondary sector and I've been a head teacher now for just over six years. And in that time, I've seen a lot of good leadership and a lot of not so good leadership going on in schools. Uh, and that includes my own practice. And I got to a point where I felt that I wanted to say a few things about leadership and think more carefully about the research into leadership and what we know about what makes good school improvement and how we can make our schools better. I think there are lots of distractions as a head teacher and as a school leader that can take us away from focusing on what's best for students. So a lot of what I write about in the book is how we overcome those distractions, how we get away from the ideology, from the managerialism that we find uh, increasingly in our schools in recent years in this country, and how do we get back to some things that will actually make a difference to the young people in our schools. So a few themes that are in the book. I take what I call in the book a suspicious engagement approach to leadership. Uh, There's a lot written about leadership both inside and outside of education, but not all of it is very evidence-based and not all of it is very helpful on a practical level to us as leaders. So I take on the concept of leadership, question what it actually means, what what we can um, infer by the information that's out there about leadership, and tackle that head-on, really, to question whether or not leadership is in itself a very useful concept. I reject the idea of generic leadership, by which I mean um, focusing on skills, capabilities, traits. Most of the literature around leadership, in my experience, has been describing hero leaders, great leaders, uh, leaders that we want to be like. But I question whether or not that's the most helpful approach. How do we actually develop ourselves as leaders? What do we need to do? What do we need to know? And most importantly, how do we become an expert in education and in improving our schools? Our model in this country for school improvement has been one of high stakes accountability, rapid turnaround for schools, a lot of pressure, particularly at the top of the organisation. And I don't think that's healthy for our school system or for the young people in it. So I propose in the book a different model for leadership, a model that's based around developing expertise, tackling some of the really tricky problems that we face in our schools and coping with complexity, the ambiguity and uncertainty of uh, leading in an environment with hundreds and hundreds of young people, uh, all with their own minds, all with their own aims and objectives in life. How do we deal with that complexity as leaders and how do we actually solve the problems that confront us? There's a couple of controversial ideas in the book, uh, which hopefully will promote some debate. So I do take on the notion of vision, um, vision as in the leader being able to see into the future and have this compelling idea of where the school will be in the future. So I take on that idea and break down what does that actually mean? What does it look like? Is it a useful concept for us in schools? And perhaps more controversially, I take on the concept of empathy and whether or not empathy is always a good thing. 
Where is it useful? How can we temper some of its ill effects? Uh, and that's an area I think some people have found pretty controversial about the book and hopefully will provoke some thought. And there are some practical things in the book too. It's not a handbook. It's more of a book for the mind. Um, but there are some practical things in that I think as leaders uh, we can take away from the book. So I talk in the book about how we shape our school culture. I think culture is really important in our schools, but it's a nebulous concept. So I talk about how we can practically start to shape the school culture and make that work to our advantage. I also talk about the importance of learning from failure, drawing on some work outside of the education field into what we can learn from failure and how we create a culture in our schools as leaders where we can learn from our mistakes. So my overall message in the book is that we need to rethink leadership, uh, look at it in a new way, refocus on what really matters for young people in our schools and find out better ways to lead our schools and really make a difference. I hope you buy the book. I hope you enjoy it. And hopefully I'll come on the podcast at a later point to tell you a bit more about it. Thanks for now. Miller's Netter, just talking to teachers. Podcast pedagogy. What is Phil reading this week? Podcast pedagogy. Listening to teachers. Miller's Netter, just talking to teachers. Welcome to the top 10 listen to Naylor's Netter podcasts of the year, as listened to across all platforms and countries. Straight in at 10, like Alice Cooper, he wants to be elected. Fresh from the PE store, it's Parents and Teachers for Excellence with Mark Lee Hayne. Up to at nine, with the current discussion on curriculum, it's Titan of Powerful Knowledge, Professor Michael Young. A non-mover at eight, it's the nicest man in research schools, it's pupil premium champion, Mark Rowland. A new entry at seven, for someone I owe a huge deal of gratitude to, it's the inspirational Cat Howard, and stop talking about well-being, book out soon. Up 10 at 6 and continuing to climb, it's my curriculum guru, Mr. Martin Robinson, with his smash hit curriculum, Athena vs. the Machine. And now moving in to the top 5, and will we have a new number 1? Well, yeah, because I've never done this before, have I? So we will. The first of our transatlantic smashes powers into the top five from Dr. Thomas Gusky and his evaluating professional development episode. Down two at four for Blackpool's very own Mr. Jonathan Klukas, who I know has had this episode on permanent rotation in late and reception to help him get to this level. Only joking, Jonathan, it's responsive teaching with Jonathan Klukas. And now into the top three. Up three at three, this episode helped me achieve a deputy headship, so it's a big personal thank you to the wonderful Dr. Jill Berry with her Making the Leadership Leap. At two, reconsidering his position and almost podcasting like a champion. In at two, it's my own personal hero, Mr. Doug Lamoth. So who has topped the listening charts with a mighty 2,642 listeners? Well, listeners, it's the bad boy of education, the maths master, Mr. Mark McCourt. Well done, Mark, and well done, everybody. And a big thank you to all listeners of Nailers Natter. Have a very Merry Christmas, and see you all in 2020. Just talking to teachers. Talking to teachers about academic research and evidence based practice with continuing professional development at PNA 1977 on Twitter. Miller's Netter, just talking to teachers.